Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you like what you hear on this episode and fancy a bit more, why not pop over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, and dig into some of my other fantastic episodes with authors, thought leaders, practitioners, and those just starting out. Oh, and don't forget to share with your friends. On tonight's episode, we pivot away from product management practices and go deep on creating a fair and just workplace. As product managers, our work touches all parts of the organisation and the best product teams are diverse and inclusive. We absolutely should not accept bad behaviour and should work actively to reduce it. So tonight we speak to someone who's literally written the book on how to reduce workplace bias, prejudice and bullying, being an upstander, not a bystander, and what to do when the rot comes from the top. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Kim Scott. Kim's a speaker, coach and author who started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow as the Soviet Union was crumbling before going back west and working for some of the biggest tech giants in Silicon Valley, including Google and Apple. Since then, she's been an executive coach at a glittering array of tech companies, learning so much along the way she felt compelled to set up her typewriter and share some of her learnings with the world. Kim taught us all to care personally and challenged directly back in 2017 with her first book, Radical Candor, and having encouraged people to talk to each other, she found there were even more complicated questions to answer. So now she's back with a new book, Just Work, aiming to foster a workplace free of bias, prejudice, and bullying. Hi, Kim. How are you tonight? Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, exciting to be here. <laughs> well, we'll see how excited you are by the end. But thank, <laughs> thank you for the kindness. So first things first, the new book came out literally last month. Mm -hmm. I I will confess I haven't finished it yet, but I'm definitely enjoying it so far. But how's the reception been in general? Has it met your expectations? The thing that has most pleased me about this book is getting, getting notes from people who are putting the ideas in the book into practice. So for example, I got a note from a senior tech leader in Silicon Valley, and he said, you know, I just hired a woman on my team yesterday. And he said, before reading your book, I would have asked her what her salary at the previous company was and matched it. He said, after reading your book, I asked her what the men who were her peers were being paid, and I matched that. (laughs) I was like, yay, success. (laughs) I I got another... Note from a from a man who is the CEO of a really big media company, and he said, "You know, I read your book, and it convinced me to eliminate alcohol from company events. <laughs> so I'm the least popular person at that media company. But I really, I really appreciate. I, I tried to write a book that would help people know what they could do. So when people are actually doing stuff as a result of reading a book, I count that a great success." Yeah, and that's obviously every author's dream, really, if they're writing a book that's as practical as this one. But I'm assuming that there's also a certain type of person who will probably react a little bit negatively to this sort of book because they think it's all okay already and everyone's just a bit too sensitive. Do you get negative feedback from that type of person or do they just kind of ignore the book? I was expecting a lot of that, but I haven't actually gotten too much of it. I'm sure it's coming. I'm waiting. I'm bracing myself. (laughs) But I've been pleasantly surprised. I mean, even my father was talking about the book with some of his friends who are maybe people you might expect to be part of the you're too sensitive crowd. (laughs) 
and, <laughs> and they read the book and they read about some of the things that had happened to me. And, and first of all, I mean, to be fair, these are my father's friends. So even if they are, uh, even if it, we don't always see eye to eye politically, they were, they were predisposed to uh, be on my side. But by the end of the conversation, they, they, they were trying to identify what went wrong at the first job I had out of college, which I describe in the introduction. And a lot of things went wrong. And they wanted to sort of identify who was the bad guy in that story. And they realized there wasn't one bad guy. And one of them said, you know, it was kind of a systemic problem. I'm like, yes, if these guys are seeing <laughs> systemic injustice, I have done something. So, Yeah, that's, that's obviously, again, something that I can imagine made you feel pretty good. But there were quite a lot of stories in the book so far, like you say, personal stories about things that have happened to you, which even on their own were kind of toe curling and I imagine obviously toe curling for me so God knows how you felt at the time <laughs> like was it pretty painful going through some of those examples and dredging some of that back up or did you kind of have that compartmentalized and just kind of looked on it fairly neutrally as a past thing you know it's really interesting when I started writing this book I thought well I'll have to do a lot of interviews with people because I haven't really had that many bad experiences in my career <laughs> but which will seem shocking once you read the book once I started thinking about it I I suddenly it dawned on me that I had had a terrible experience every single day of my career <laughs> and not all of them equally terrible but and I had more good times than bad times I mean don't get me wrong I overall had a great career and I uh, was lucky to have a lot of success, but I think that it was really, for me, it was therapeutic to write the book. It really helped me process a bunch of stuff that I had been in denial about. And sometimes in the short term, denial, it's sort of like shock when you're injured. It helps you get through something. But in the long term, if you don't process it, it does a lot of harm. And so it was. I was really grateful that I had the opportunity to spend that much time processing <laughs> the junk that had happened. And, and I hope that the time I spent processing will help other people process their experiences more efficiently than perhaps I did. The full title of the book is Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair. Yeah, the, the US title, the UK title is more polite. It's Get It Done. Yeah, so I was going to say, I saw that and I was very curious about that because even the shit version has the little modesty asterisk there to yeah. kind of save our feelings. <laughs> but so the get it done version was the UK thing or European thing, was it? Or Yeah, it was, I'll, I'll be radically candid about why. It was to get around the censors <laughs> in certain of the <laughs> certain countries where the UK uh, version gets published. I think shit might have gone down okay in the UK itself. but Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. But there are other... Yeah, and in fact, Amazon, in, in the US, we didn't know this, but Amazon won't let us advertise the book <laughs> because of the shit. <laughs> so anyway, if I had known that, I might have gone with it uh, in both the US and the UK versions. That's fair enough and slightly weird, obviously, the some of the attitudes towards, you know, words with stars in. You'd imagine that we could probably live with that. But at the same time, <laughs> I can also imagine my kids asking what that meant. But yeah, if we go back to radical candor, you've got a four box diagram and the obnoxious aggression quadrant. And I understand you were originally going to call that the asshole quadrant. Yeah. But you felt, you, I guess you, you thought better of that. Yeah. So there's a it's kind of a pattern going on here of using carefully chosen curse words. Do you, do you think that's a, a good strategy to kind of get people's attention and really underline points? Or do you think 
aside from sensors that it could potentially put people off? It definitely can put some people off. The thing about that title is that it it puts more people on than off. <laughs> uh, and there's there. Here's a question. I'm not sure. We debated long and hard about what about that subtitle, and I, I'm not sure, honestly, we made the right choice. I think that the the immediacy of the language sort of pushes people towards. Oh, this, you know, she's going to speak. She's going to have some real talk. She's not going to choose every word. Although, of course, it was chosen carefully, <laughs> <laughs> but it leaves people with the impression that I'm just talking. Yeah. So yeah, very, like, almost like you're just having a chat like we are now, just you know, friendly chat around stuff and just happen to be talking about very important things that could change people's lives. Yeah. There's been, Bob Sutton tweeted recently, another author who wrote a book called The No Asshole Rule. So he's struggled yeah. with this as well. And he tweeted some research recently that showed that people think you're telling the truth. People are more apt to believe you're telling the truth when you curse than when you don't, for whatever reason. That's not why I did it, but I found that research kind of interesting. <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting one. I'll try and avoid too many more curse words in this interview, though, just in case. The kids are listening. I know. My children, <laughs> my children really, they gave me uh, some of that word uh, for using that word. <laughs> it's fine. I can always get my bleeper. Yes. But in a new book, you say that radical candor was a really good start. And it really helped to get people communicating better, which is obviously the point of the book. But that didn't really work for everyone. Because, for example, when women are radically candid, or minority people are radically candid, they themselves get judged maybe in a way that like a white guy wouldn't get. It almost seemed that that was the precursor then to just work becoming a thing. But was that a long period between the two books? Or did you have to like? Did you have to get like loads of stories like that coming back to you before you decided to write the new one, or was it kind of in your mind from the point that you published the book in the first place? So I was giving a presentation. I think it was a few months. The book came out in March. Radical Candor came out in March, and by June I was writing this one. Wow! And here, here was the one moment where I think things really crystallized for me. I was giving a Radical Candor presentation at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade. And she is one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And after the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I really like radical candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture that I want. But I got to tell you, it's a lot harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. Because she explained, as soon as I offer even the most compassionate candor, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I, I knew yep. this was true. I knew this was true. And it made me realize three things at the same moment. The first was that I had not been the kind of upstander that I wanted to be. I had not been the kind of colleague that I saw myself as. I had refused to notice the ways in which she was unfailingly pleasant, never seemed even the tiniest bit annoyed, even though I knew she had what to be mad about in that in that period of time. And second of all, it made me realize not only had I been in denial about the things that were happening to her, I had been in denial about the things that were happening to me as a woman, as a white woman in the workplace. And last but not least, certainly, it made me realize that that I had not as a leader, I had often not created the kind of workplace 
that would prevent these sorts of things from happening to people like her and people like me. And I really, I felt bad about that. And I really wanted to explore it. And that was what prompted me to start writing this book. But you just touched on it then. And you also mentioned it fairly early on in the book as well around how, whilst obviously, as a woman yourself in the workplace, you've certainly had your share of the stories, for example, that you've told already, but that you yourself are still fairly privileged in many ways. So you're, you know, you're white, you're cisgender, you're straight, you've had a decent upbringing, you've obviously had a good career. Did that make you feel hesitant at all? And worrying a little bit that maybe you're kind of the white savior riding on the horse type affair? Or did you feel that the message that you had and the points that you had to put across and the advice that you had was something that was fairly universal and that you didn't worry too much about the credibility of, of that and of your privilege that you do have? It worried me a lot. Uh, it was, it, and it, it at times it almost made me wonder whether I should be the one writing this book because, you know, I was born on second base, and you know, uh, I, I, you know, privilege only compounds over time. Yeah. And so the advantages that I was born into gave me more advantages, which in turn gave me more advantages. So it helped me get into a good college, which gives you a giant unfair advantage. And uh, especially in the US, it's a it's a problem. But I think you have some of that problem there in the UK as well. Oh, yes. And so, uh, yeah. So, so for me to talk about injustice, I mean, by and large, the injustice I have experienced in my life is getting more than my fair share. Uh, and so I, I worked really hard to acknowledge that while at the same time not undermining the fact that a number of really unfair things had also happened to me. And I also worked with a number of people to make sure that I, to point, not just make sure that I wasn't, to point out, I knew that I, I know that I'm biased. I know that I have any number of biases. And so I worked with a number of people who would read the book and point them out to me and I'm sure there's still some in there. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book, for example, Breeze Harper is, is one of my bias busters. And she read the book and she pointed out to me my ableist sight metaphors and sort of sloppy sight metaphors where I would say, I see when I would write, I see when what I really meant was I understand or I notice or something like that. And I really cared a lot about changing this because I care about language. Like I'm a writer. I really believe to my core that words matter and choosing the right words matters to me. And I also cared about it because one of the other people who was helping me to edit the book is a guy named Zach Shore, one of the great editors of all time. And he's, he's blind. And so I didn't want, and I care about Zach. I like him a lot. The last thing in the world I would want to do is to use language that would harm him. And so I thought I had really gotten this. And then right before I sent the book to my editor, I did a quick search. And in a 350-page book, I had used sloppy sight metaphors, ableist sight metaphors, 99 times after I had gotten the feedback. And so I think it's so important to realize how difficult it is, but also it's not impossible <laughs> to identify these biases and to eliminate them. 
Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because there are so many terms that we use day to day and not just about seeing things, but like various words that we'd use to describe people as being a bit dumb that actually turn out to be effectively conditions that people can have that just that's the name that they were called back in Victorian times or something like that. Yeah. And it's obviously, I mean, the way I see it, at least, is it's not necessarily a problem that you didn't know something like for example the word cretin has been obviously a, a problematic one because it meant you know, it actually referred to a specific condition mm-hmm. but if you keep using it after you're told then that's when it becomes a problem right and that's where i think this bias thing comes in that you talk about it's like you have to learn and accept not do what some of those people we were talking about earlier would do which is learn and then push back and say oh you, you're just too sensitive yeah. because you're right. Words do matter. I obsess over words all the time. Yeah, yeah. And and there's so many phrases. And I think one of the things that's useful about talking about bias more generally is that we all we all use bias. Every single person listening, I promise you, you're using all kinds of bias. I'm still using all kinds of bias words. And and so when we focus on different kinds of biases then we're all united in our effort to identify them. And and it can be fun. You learn a lot, you change your language, your language gets better, you get more precise, you communicate better. And, uh, and it's, it's great. It's like, it's not this onerous thing. It's actually, it's fun to eliminate your biases. Yeah, I think it's the difference between people who are just so set in their ways and they just feel that any single thing that you bring up is just another example of political correctness gone mad versus people actually wanting to improve themselves. So yeah, and and I think part of the problem is that sometimes we confuse bias with prejudice. And so sometimes when you point out a person's bias to them, they think you're telling them that they're being prejudiced. And and then they get defensive. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not the job of the person pointing out bias to tiptoe through someone else's uh someone else's defenses. But I think it's that's why in the book I talk about the importance of differentiating among bias, prejudice, and bullying because they're three very different things. And so we need to respond to each one differently. And when we learn to distinguish b- between them, it means that when, when someone flags your bias, you're less likely to feel like that profound sense of shame or defensiveness, and you're more likely to have a growth mindset. Oh, thank you for pointing it out. I'll work on changing it. And also, I think we need some patience with changing our biases because, as with that, the sloppy sight metaphor problem that that I have, even after you're aware, it can take a while to. Ch- these are deeply ingrained habits, and so being patient with ourselves and with others in changing these habits and just flagging them, sort of interrupting the bias over and over and over again. It will eventually, we we do get better, but we're not going to get better the first time. So what are some of the approaches that you would recommend or have recommended to calling people out in a way that is constructive and can maybe reduce that shielding that they try to do to, to back off? Yeah. So I think it's useful to think about what's our role. Are we the upstander? In other words, we observe something going wrong and we're going to stand up to it. We're going to point it out. 
Or are we the, so you want to be an upstander, not a bystander, obviously. So are you the upstander? Are you the person who is harmed by the bias, the prejudice or the bullying? Are you the person causing harm or are you the leader? So one of the things I want to do is, is help people, obviously, who are harmed by workplace injustice. So let's start there. But I want to also remind folks that if we put all the burden for fixing these problems on the people who are harmed by the problems, that's, that's, that's itself a problem. Yes, it is. So, so we'll also talk about what leaders and upstanders can do. But if you feel that somebody is saying something to you that's biased, one of the things you can do is use an I statement. And an I statement, I like to say, invites someone in to understand the situation from your perspective rather than calling them out. So you're not saying, you know, you sexist pig. You're saying, when you refer to me as pretty girl, I don't think you're going to take me seriously. And so it's, it's, it's kind of more of a neutral or, or it's really an invitation to the other person to, uh, to understand things from your perspective. And upstanders, by the way, can use an I statement as well. So for example, a friend of mine went into a meeting and she was with two colleagues who are men and they sat down at the table and then the people from the other company that they were meeting with filed in. And the first guy sat next to the guy to my friend's left. And the next guy come, came in and sat across from the, the next guy to her left. And then they filed on down the table, leaving her kind of dangling at the end. And sort of an unconscious bias in the, in the seating arrangement. And then it turned out that she had the expertise that was going to win her team the deal. But... When she started talking, the people on the other side of the table just would turn to her colleagues who were men. They were just, it was as though she hadn't opened her mouth. And this happened once, it happened twice, it happened a third time. And finally, her colleague realized what was happening. And he stood up and he said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. That was his I statement. And lo and behold, as soon as they switched seats, the whole tenor of the room changed. Everybody realized what they were doing and they stopped doing it. They started including Aileen in the conversation. So much easier for him to do that than it would have been for her to do that. So that's an I statement in the, in the case of bias. Now, when it is prejudice, so bias is sort of not meaning it. I mean, there's a lot, you can define it endlessly, but let's just call it not meaning it. Prejudice. I'm going to define as meaning it. And there's a lot more to it. Go read Gordon Alpert's book, The Nature of Prejudice, but meaning, it's intentional. It's a conscious belief. And people can believe whatever they want to believe, but they cannot impose their belief on others. They cannot say or do anything they want in a, in a work environment. Oh, they can try. They sure can, and they do. <laughs> uh, and so... If it is prejudice, you want to use an it statement. So my a colleague, my the person who I founded this company just worked with, Trier Bryant, was in a hiring meeting. And the most qualified candidate was a black woman. And she was wearing her hair out naturally. And the hiring manager in the hiring meeting afterwards said, well, she has all the qualifications, but we can't hire her because of her hair. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Wow. Believe me, yeah, nowhere in the hiring documents was hair. And so, so anyway, what is an it statement that you can use in the face of that? You can say it is illegal, which it is in California, not to hire someone because of their hair. 
You can say it is an HR violation not to hire someone because of their hair. Or you could appeal to common sense, like it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. So that's sort of the the it statement. The it statement makes it clear where that boundary is between one one person's freedom to believe whatever they want and another person's freedom not to have that belief imposed upon them. So that's the it statement. And by the way, if you're a leader, you need to write a code of conduct to make it clear where that, because it's easy for me to say, oh, yeah, you know, there's this line, but, but <laughs> defining that line is another matter. It's hard. And then what if it's bullying? Bullying, I'm going to define as being mean. And one of the things I learned from my daughter is that you don't want to use an I statement if someone is bullying you. You don't want to invite them in to see. So, so my daughter was being bullied. She was in third grade. She's being bullied on the playground. And I suggested to her, why don't you tell this kid, I feel sad when you blah. And she looked at me like I was, had lost my mind. <laughs> she said, mom, he is trying to make me sad. Why in the world would I tell him he succeeded? And I thought, gosh, why would you? You shouldn't, actually. And so a you statement sort of pushes the, if an I statement invites them in, a you statement pushes them away. And you're sort of, you're in an active pose when you're saying, you can't talk to me like that. Or if that feels like it might escalate things too much, just say, what's going on for you here? Like you can, you can offer a little bit of compassion for the person who's bullying you, but but you got to make it about them, not about you. And so those are some simple things you can do in the face of this stuff. I, I statement, it's statement for prejudice, you statement for bullying. And you mentioned it before as well, the concept of upstanders and having allies that can stand up for, for you, maybe when it's not quite so comfortable for you to do it yourself or where you need backup or whatever the situation calls for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but obviously it's not, well, or rather, it is a really well-known phenomenon that most people will just kind of stand there and sort of look at their feet, or sit there and look at their feet. And probably the more people that you have in the room, the less likely it is for someone to stand up because they all they all defer and expect it to be someone else's job. And, and it gets worse in those sort of situations. How are some ways that we can encourage bystanders to become upstanders? Yeah. By the way, I think there's there's some debate around that research. There was that case of the woman who was killed, and it turned out a number of people had called the police, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, not, that, not that calling the police is always such a great response in this country, unfortunately. But we've all been in meetings where something gets said that's kind of egregious and nobody says anything or does anything. And so one of the things that leaders can do to make it more likely, like that the story I told about my friend and he's and her colleague stood up, like that never happens. <laughs> that's like <laughs> I, I, I had to you notice that's one of the stories where I had to tell someone else's stories. So I didn't have a great story about someone standing up to bias. Uh, so for me, some, someone being an upstander. I had a good one for prejudice, which I'll tell in a second. But anyway, I think one of the things that leaders can do to make it more likely that upstanders will stand up is to create what I call bias interrupters. And this is really uncomfortable. So it requires, it requires some, some leadership. But if, you, if you're a manager and you go to your team and you say, look, I know that there is bias being expressed in every meeting we have every day, all, every week. What are some of the things we can do to interrupt it so that we can get better? 
So you come up with a shared vocabulary and then a norm about how to respond. So the shared vocabulary can be anything. Some teams we've worked with have said, bias alert. Uh, my editor and I would say yo to one another. And I knew if he said <laughs> yo, I had just said something that was biased. Trier and I have a purple flag, uh, which I will wave oh, here. I can see it right now. So I'm assuming that I've just said something wrong, but that's No, no, fine. no. I'm just showing off my purple flag. And, uh, and so the purple flag means that I've said something or she has said something that is biased. And so as soon as you get the purple flag or the bias alert uh, tossed your way, you know you've said something that, uh, that the other person is, uh, finds to be biased. And so you, you want to make sure that people know how to respond to this because it's, no matter how, what you do, people are going to feel a sense of shame when their bias has been flagged. And so you want to help people move through that productively and not because very often when we feel ashamed, we respond unproductively. And so you, you get two choices. You can either say, thank you for pointing it out. I'll try to do better. Or you can say, I don't quite understand why that's biased. Can you tell me after the meeting? And then you've got to talk to the person after the meeting. And just that simple sort of interrupting bias publicly, daily, now people are, they're looking out for it. And the more that we build stamina to interrupt bias, the less painful it is. It's like, you know, learning to run. You, you don't start out running a, a marathon, you kind of build up to it. But, but once you get in the habit of running, then you feel bad when you don't run. And so, so you want to build good bias interrupting habits. And that requires some effort from leaders. Very rarely will this happen organically on a team because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that marathon metaphor is actually really, really interesting. Actually, the whole idea that you have to kind of build those muscles and keep maintaining those muscles. And I, I think also I'd like to think that people that, that maybe don't put the effort in should probably feel as bad as you do at the end of a marathon as well, you know, because... <laughs> Should be uncomfortable for them, right? And I think yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually really really an interesting metaphor. But you also talk and you've spoken about the leadership imperative to actually get leaders to come and enable this within their organizations. But then there are some situations where the leaders are part of the problem. And from the CEO down, there's just a culture that just isn't right. And that can obviously make you feel as the person being harmed as like the whole organization's weighing down on you. So for example, I have a friend who a few years ago was at a work party. The CEO, let's call it what it is, drunkenly tried to sexually assault her. He was called out and he was moved on, but there was lots of talk of NDAs and yeah. like trying to get you know, people try trying to keep it all a secret and the company tried to hush it all up and that's obviously a horrible story and that person is you know by implication a fairly horrible man for doing that but how does someone in that situation where you're in a company where from top down there's there's a problem how do they push back against that other than just leaving the company yeah yeah it's really tricky one of the assertions i make in just work is that power is bad just full stop power is bad and the more power you have, the more likely it is that you're going to behave in a, in a bullying way 
Furthermore, the more power you have when you add, layer power on top of, of bias or prejudice, you get discrimination. When you layer power on top of, of bullying, you get harassment. And when you layer power on top of touch, you wind up with these physical violations or even violence. And so, first of all, as a leader, you really want to create checks and balances on the leaders in your organization. And if you're the CEO, you, you got to make sure that those checks and balances apply to you as well. So, but what can, what can you do if you're not in an organization that is <laughs> characterized by checks and balances? I think one of the things that's really important, you don't have to actually leave, but making sure that you know what your exit options are is important. And I say this can be discouraging for me to say, especially right now in the middle of a global pandemic. It can feel really daunting to look for another job right now. But I think there are, there are company, a lot of companies that are hiring actually right now. And sometimes it's true that you're well and truly stuck. And I don't want to pretend otherwise. But more often than not, we're not as stuck as we think we are. And so, and also, by the way, it goes in the other direction as well. Sometimes a leader is afraid to create consequences for someone who is bullying on their team because this person has some skill set that is hard to find. And so they think they can't fire the person who's bullying their teammates. But it is your job as a leader to create consequences for bullying. So make sure no matter what side of the equation you're on, you know where the exits are. I think another thing that's really important is to build solidarity. Uh, too many times throughout my career, I didn't tell anybody, anybody about what was happening to me. And so often I, that left me in, with the feeling that I was the problem, not that the people who were harming were, me were the problem. And so I think building solidarity will really help you avoid getting gaslit. I think also documenting the problems even if you have no intention of taking legal action, documenting the problems is really important because it, A, it helps dispel gaslighting and B, it preserves the option if you decide later to take legal action or to write the story, then you've got the, you've got the documentation. In the, one of the first big Me Too reckonings in tech was a woman named Susan Fowler at now Susan Rigetti at Uber. And she documented everything. She do and she also went to HR. And that is why her memo was so strong, because you knew what, like, she, you could tell that, that this was, that it really added to the richness of the story. So document. I think that you, it is a good idea to go to HR. Even if, and I want to acknowledge that sometimes HR has an agency problem. So that they're, they're protecting the interests of the company. They're protecting the interests of the leaders at the company who are often the people who have done the thing that's problematic. And last but not least, too often, they're protecting your interests. So I want to acknowledge it can be risky to go to HR. But when HR is good, and sometimes it is very, very good, they will help you solve the problem. And they should. I mean, that. HR should serve the interests of the people at the company. In fact, I like to call it people operations, not, not HR. So often they will help. Even when they don't help, it's useful to have on record what they didn't do if they don't. So that's a reason to go to HR. 
especially if you've explored your exit options and you know you can pull the ripcord and leave if you have to. Sometimes a direct conversation with the person who caused you harm will actually resolve the problem, says the radical candor, author of Radical Candor. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a believer in the direct conversation. But again, it can be risky and it can backfire. So you want to make sure that you are not, I don't want to encourage people to do things that will cause them more harm. But very often people don't realize what they're doing, what they've done. So I think a direct conversation can help. Sometimes you, you, you've got to explore your legal options. And this is where you mentioned the NDA early, that like, this will change. Mark my words, this will change. The, <laughs> the way that we use NDAs to silence victims is despicable and ought to be illegal, and I believe will be illegal before too long. In fact, Ifeoma Azoma here in California is working really hard to make it illegal and go support her efforts. So you can pursue your legal options. And also, I think one of the things that gives me optimism is the extent to which people can just tell their story now. You know, there's social media has done a lot of bad things for us, but it's also done some good things. Like, I don't think any reporter would have picked up Susan Fowler's story, but she wrote it and it went viral. And now, you know, then all of a sudden it was all anybody could write about. So have a strategy, keep receipts and make sure you know what your options are. Yes, exactly. I mean, I would say the, the and this is probably advice from a privileged woman. So, so I want to acknowledge that. But the single best thing I ever did was go look for other jobs. Because if you can leave, you know you can fight harder. Well, the power dynamic shifts as well, right? I mean, yeah. obviously, they might not care if you leave, depending on your role. But if they care in any way, then then that does kind of equalize or balance the scales a little bit, or maybe even tip the scales in your favor. So absolutely, I think you should have that on the table. Yeah. Now, all good things come in threes. Yes. So is there a book three in the Kim Scott trilogy, or are you concentrating on spreading the message from books one and two? Oh, believe me, there, I love to write. I love that. Is, <laughs> I am a writer. That is, if you ask me what my job is, it is to write. So I don't know if it'll be my very next book or the book after my next book, but I th soon I'm going to write a novel and it's going to be kind of like the Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley novel, because it is so, it is, there's a lot to be said about what's happening where I live. And it's best explored in fiction, I think. <laughs> Yeah, you can start making names up and uh, yeah. pretending that it's not real as well. But obviously, yeah. as we saw earlier, you can see Silicon Valley directly out of your window as well, which is yes. obviously give you a little bit of inspiration as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, what's next on the promotional roller coaster for you? Are you uh, got lots of other events lined up? Have you got any webinars or anything that you'll be speaking at that people can come and see you at? Sure, absolutely. If you come to our website, uh, justworktogether.com, you'll see all our uh, appearances. And the, the other thing that we often do is go and give talks at companies. So we give talks and workshops, uh, and we help people put the ideas in the book into practice. Because it's one thing for me to say, create these bias interrupters on your team. It's kind of another thing to do it. And so we're happy to help folks with implementation as well. Excellent. I'll make sure to uh, put that in the show notes so people can come and uh, find out a bit more. Great. 
Thank you. Well, that's been a really interesting chat. And obviously, we could have, or certainly I could have spent another two hours talking about this stuff. But I know that you're a, you're a busy woman. So thanks very much for taking the time. Uh, hopefully, we can stay in touch. But as for now, again, just uh, really thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, you found the episode interesting and it's inspired you to take action to make your own difference at work. Again, I'd love it if you could spread the word and share this episode widely and check out some of my other great episodes on the website, onenightinproduct.com. Sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.